right. Welcome, everybody, to the Parent Podcast. We're so thankful that you could be here today. Uh, my name is Matt Clark, and in the studio, I have my good friend, Mr. Mike Smith. What's up, Mike? Not much. Good day. Good day. <laughs> yes, it's good to have you here. Um, we're, we've got a special edition of the Parent Podcast for you. This is actually going to be a couple of episodes long. Um, our first podcast that we did, we it was titled... Is teaching creation important? And, and it was this, uh, the concept was that, um, it, is it important for you as a parent to know enough about creation, to teach your kid about creation? And, and um, what's funny is Mike here is one of the uh, teachers at the Genoa Christian Academy, which is the school that the church is uh, teamed up with. And uh, he teaches science here, and he knows a lot about creation, and so we talked about it. And uh, Mike thought uh, we agreed that it'd be a good idea to do a podcast um, about creation specifically, like maybe some questions that you would have as a parent. Um, I know that I am not well-versed on creation, not as much as I should be anyways. But um, So when we were talking uh, together, we kind of came with this idea and decided to name this one, Is Teaching Creation Scientific? And um, there's a lot of people out there who would say that creationism is not scientific, um, and uh, hopefully we can refute that claim today. So, um, so what we're, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. And I thought a great way to start this off, Mike, would be if you could just take a moment and just tell us your story, how you got to be where you are today, because you have not always been a creationist, like a, uh, somebody who believes creationism. So, That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so why don't you tell us about that? Well, I was telling Matt that um, my hot topic, my hot button is creation. And the reason it is is because it's what drove me out of the church as a young teenager. And I was probably 14 years old when I was attending school. Uh, What I was learning in biology class was not matching up with what I had heard in church. And I attended church as a youth. And when I went to my pastor, the youth pastor, and asked him how I reconciled the two different accounts, the one I was hearing in school and the one that I was hearing in Sunday school, he basically told me that I need to rely on science to answer my questions about the world um, and not to rely on the Bible. The Bible was more of who was behind it all, but not how he did it. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is I knew enough of the Bible to know that Genesis gives a lot of details. Mm-hmm. And these details did not match up at all with what I had learned in biology class. And at 14 years old, I basically had made a decision that I wasn't smart enough to know when to believe the Bible and when not to believe the Bible. So I just quit believing any of it. So the issue isn't so much about creation and evolution as it is about the authority of the Bible and whether I can trust it. And at 14, I decided I couldn't trust it anymore. And I lived that way until I was in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And and then was when you I know when you went to college and uh, you took uh, I, some science class. I know that there was a was there a moment in your life that you had to kind of draw a line in the sand and decide which way you were going to go and commit in, to it. In reality, okay. So I graduated from Ohio State University. Go Buckeyes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I had a major in chemistry, a major in physics, and a minor in mathematics. Um, really did not desire to go into teaching. Uh, It was just one of those things that worked out for me. Uh, So when I graduated from college, I was an atheist, and I was deep in evolution. That's all I'd ever studied at the university. Had no problems with that. It was actually when I was in the workforce that I um, went through a lot of personal issues that brought me to my knees, and I had a Damascus experience. I literally met the Lord on 71 heading south. Wow. And um, it was one of those things where I 
kind of like Paul. I knew it was the Lord that was speaking to me. I didn't know who he was in reality. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that much about him. But I knew that my life had just been spared through an accident that I had that had it not been for him, I would have been dead. Right. At that point, I started attending a church that taught the scripture as being valid. It was the first time I'd ever been in a church that people actually was reading the Bible and underlining it and acting like it meant something. Right. And it really um, was a great experience. And then as I listened, I realized so many of the questions I had as a young adult had been answered in the scriptures, but I had never taken the time to read it. And I started to get angry, I guess, at the fact that I had had those answers all those years and had never taken the time to read it because I was convinced the Bible wasn't valid. I um, was not teaching at that point. I was still in the industry, working in the food industry, and uh, got involved in a Sunday school program at the church I was attending. Found out I actually enjoyed working with young people. And in that experience of teaching Sunday school, um, I came around to the topic of salvation Mm -hmm. and whether someone had ever led uh, a young person to the Lord or a neighbor to the Lord. And one little girl said that she knew her neighbors were not Christians. And I said, well, how do you know that? She said, well, they believe we came from monkeys. (laughs) And I believed we came from monkeys. So it's like I kind of got upset, like, what do you mean? How can you make that judgment? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, you know, I better talk to someone at this church because I didn't grow up in this church. I really didn't know the, the doctrine, what they believed. So I talked to the head pastor told him my whole belief systems, and at that point, uh, I had gone from being an atheistic evolutionist to a theistic evolutionist. I still believed in evolution, but I believed that there was a God, Mm -hmm. so I had to put the two together. And I told this uh, pastor about my belief system, and he was gracious enough not to argue with me, but smiled a lot and invited me to come live to listen to a speaker that was happening that weekend. And he gave me a book the gentleman wrote, and the book was about how the Bible could be believed in seven literal days and the whole creation story. And I read it, and I threw it away mm-hmm. because I thought, this is ridiculous. This is not scientific. You know, How could anyone believe this? The problem was that in his book, he made one valid point, and that was that Jesus Christ was a creationist. Jesus believed the Bible. He taught that the Bible had authority and that that authority could be trusted. So I had a dilemma between believing Jesus as my Lord and believing the Bible as factual because I didn't believe that, but I believed him. So I ended up having to start rethinking my whole scientific education. And I started attending some seminars. I started doing some reading. And I found that so many things that I had accepted at the university level without question, I needed to question. And as I studied more and more, I found that it was more consistent with the Scripture than I had ever dreamed. And I made it a 40-year journey of of studying and trying to know more and more and seeing how science and the Bible did fit together. So um, that's my basic. So as a university, I didn't have this moment of change. It was after the university. Got it. And it was actually through the fact that I dealt with the Lord. Right. That's... It's, that's kind of funny when, when you're telling the story about the little girl, when she goes, well, they believe that we came from monkeys, so they're not Christian. Yep. I can imagine you're, you're like, wait, wait, hold on. That's yeah. what I believe. What are you talking about? So, yeah, from the mouth of babes. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> At least that's... I had the sense not to argue with this poor little sixth grader. <laughs> right. right, right. 
That's that's funny. Well, um, that that's awesome. I'm glad you you, you did that because I think um, I love the fact that you have been on both sides of the aisle in terms of evolution and creationism, and because what that tells me is that you have gone through each side's arguments and you you've you've you know used um, uh, logic and you've studied them and you, you've kind of. I assume you found that creation is the one that that survives the test of uh, science, right? So, yeah. So it really comes down to what is science, because we've talked about this, you and I, and yeah. people will come to me and say, you know, we've only got faith, and they've got all the facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, why didn't God give us more facts? And it hit me that reality is we have the same facts. The facts are. The, the relics that we dig up, the observations we make, the facts are facts. They're not creation facts or evolution facts, right. they're facts. We're, we're both looking at the same things. Exactly. Yeah. So then from the facts, people think that science is this purely objective thing that you put the facts in a computer and it spits out the answer. Mm-hmm. Well, reality is we have to take the facts and build some type of interpretation around it. And that interpretation is really affected by our bias. So when we look at um, whatever facts we want to look at, we can look at it either through an eye that acknowledges there is a God, mm-hmm. or we can look at those same facts and say there is no God. Mm-hmm. Well, if there is a God, then I have no problem seeing these facts through the, the, the Scripture or through the fact that there is a supernatural being that takes an active part of my life. Mm-hmm. If I don't believe He exists, then there's nothing I can say that makes that sensible. So I have to interpret it, even if it's ridiculous, I have to interpret it as happening on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, Give you an example, and I don't want to get too mathematical, but my mind goes there. (laughs) Bring it on. Okay, so so someone asked me, you know, what's the best argument? And I remember uh, somebody telling me once, if, if, if you go to the zoo and you look at a monkey and you look at a person and you see some of the actions, there's so many similarities, it's just obvious that we came from them. Yeah. And I thought, okay, now wait a minute. If, if we're talking about obvious, if I can look at a motorcycle and I can look at a bicycle mm-hmm. and I can say it's obvious there's a conceptual connection between the two, yeah. but that doesn't mean I can go into a bicycle shop and build a motorcycle. Right. Because there's hardware that's missing in that mm-hmm. bicycle shop. So to look at two creatures that have similar needs and to see similarities doesn't argue that they came one from the other. It can argue that there's a common designer or that there's a common design mm-hmm. and that that design is predicated on the base of a need. And, and you know that's what I now believe. I, so I look for things that are in common. So things that live in the ocean have commonalities. Things that fly in the air have commonalities. There are things that make them common, not because one evolved from the other, but because they had a similar designer. So when I look at mathematics and I say, okay, what is the probability that this all happened by itself? I go into the realm of chemistry because that's the area that I know. Right. And if I look at um, the things that we call amino acids that mm-hmm. make up proteins, and if you talk about life coming out of an accidental occurrence of these amino acids just getting together in the right combinations and forming life, you have to look at, okay, what is the probability of that? Is this something that could just happen? And uh, a simple example is that if I have a right-handed form or a, a head or tail, 50-50. Okay. Okay, flip two coins, get two heads, that was a 50-50 and a 50-50 or one chance out of four. Mm-hmm. If I flip five coins and each one has a chance one out two, I have to take one out two 
times one out two times one out two times one out two these multiply out so the probability right. of getting all these heads in a row become pretty improbable right so if you look at a, a protein mm-hmm. that forms from amino acids they all are in what's called the left-handed form in our body now both forms exist in nature in chemistry class and so what's the chances that only the left-handed forms are picked well it's just like a head or a tail but amino acids are hundreds of units long mm-hmm. so if you do one out of two times one out of two a hundred times now you start getting astronomical numbers mm-hmm. and and i look at that and i say yeah but i guess it could happen i mean if you look at buying a lottery ticket somebody's going to win so let's say all these amino acids go together in the left-handed form well does that constitute life uh, that's one protein well how many proteins does it take well now you have maybe several hundred proteins mm-hmm. that have to overcome the same improbability so that you can get this bundle of chemicals we call life mm-hmm. but amino acids don't stay around for a long time so now you complicate the math a little because now you got to say all this has to happen within the same time because if they stick around for a week they aren't going to be around so you got to take all the time of the universe and say okay now we got to have all these hundred proteins come together in the same little window of time but not only the same window of time but the same geographic location because if one happened in the pacific ocean and one happened in the atlantic ocean that doesn't make life so now you got to have all these improbabilities all happening in the same window of time in the same glass full of water on the same planet right that doesn't take faith right you know it's a lot easier for me to say in the beginning god created than to say all this mathematical improbabilities could just happen yeah now people don't like to look at that one because that gives you a headache and it's actually worse than what i just gave you (laughs) i I was just about to say i understood everything you just said yeah and i I could tell that by the glazing (laughs) of your eyes nobody's buying that (laughs) yeah but it's just one of those things that when i started to look at things i thought you know it just didn't happen right you know it's not one of those things that you know um there's a gentleman who wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, and when he looked at the improbability of things coming together, mm-hmm. it just mathematically it's not going to happen. Right. So as a scientist, I got to look at the math and say, you know, this is an improbability. So you know, if you believe in that, you got a big part of faith in you also. Right. I, I think there there's probably a um, when you anytime I watch a debate about evolution and stuff, I think there's kind of a um, Especially on the part of the evolutionists, there's this this mindset that they have science behind them, and it's it's foolish to not believe what they believe. And, and I I totally agree with what you just said that there there is um, I I think and I think you would agree is that there is so much more faith needed to believe evolution than there is to believe creation, you know. And so, well, and, and when I explain this to the kids, when we study science, we have models, mm-hmm. and models are basically buckets that we put all these facts in and we feel that these facts can be explained if we interpret it through this model. And so I kind of look at the creation model as being different than the evolutionary model. And the biggest difference is evolution argues that natural processes by themselves can explain everything. Right. So when you look at life, when you look at anything, you got to look at just natural processes. So the key phrase they use is that today is a key for the past. If you study things today, mm-hmm. that can be used to interpret what had happened in the past. The creation model says that, yes, there's a naturalistic process that goes on because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that his world follows a natural process. Mm-hmm. But he's not bound by it. 
Right. So there are supernatural events. Now, supernatural events are not something that you rely on to explain everything. You know, something happens, I can't just say, well, God did it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I look at a birth of a baby, and someone says, well, that's a miracle. Well, you know, that's not a miracle. That's a natural process that happens. Mm-hmm. Now, the creation of that process, that was a miracle. Right. So, you know, when God came up with it, that was pretty good. But for it to happen, that's because it's following God's ordained laws. So when I look at the evolutionary model and say this is a naturalistic process, and I try to study geology or biology or chemistry or physics, I'm going to use the natural processes. But if I have something that relies on a supernatural creator, mm-hmm. right. uh, I, I don't have a problem with that. I'll give you a quick example of that. First law of thermodynamics says all the energy in the universe is constant. It cannot be created nor destroyed. So that says everything that's around as a physicist, I can follow the energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, second law says the amount of useful energy is becoming less and less. Well, the first law argues that there never was a creation, never was a creator because it's always been here. Mm-hmm. But if it's always been here, the second law says all that useful energy would now be useless because it runs downhill. Mm-hmm. So that argues there had to be a beginning if we have any energy left. Right. Well, the two laws contradict each other. Mm-hmm. No, they don't. God created in the beginning. That's the start. So I, I look at it from a standpoint saying it explains the in, unexplainable. Right. And so that's the kind of way I look at all this. So Gotcha. Well, and I know science, what we talked about... Um, Science kind of gets this, um, it has a reputation of being a thing, I think, right? Where, where science, is, science has the answer. Science is a thing. You can't go against science. And, and science, I mean, like you said earlier, we've got all the facts, right? So I think science is observing the answers and coming up with the questions or something. Or what, what would you say about that? Like if you had to define what is science, like what, what, what do you think? Well, the, the pure definition of science is knowledge. So we're seeking knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we have a method called the scientific method that we say we are going to use that allows us to take uh, observations and organize them and come up with hypotheses and mm-hmm. theories and so forth. The, the problem with that is that we have two types of science. Mm-hmm. One I call empirical science, which is what I teach in my classroom. So we, we do a chemistry lab, we, we make observations, we come up with conclusions, we test those conclusions, and from that you come up with maybe some principles you can use. But it's based on something that's happening in right front of now. you right so now. So as yeah. a doctor, as a, as a biologist, I'm watching, I'm, I'm fertilizing a plant. I'm trying to see the results of that. I'm looking at the timing. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at different products. I'm trying to come up with some type of conclusion that I can then use in a predictive way. That's all the science that you and I uh, see in a classroom. Mm-hmm. The other is historical science. Mm-hmm. And so now historical science says, can I use those principles to go back in time and investigate something that I didn't observe happen? I see the evidence that something happened, but can I use these principles of today to unlock the key of what happened in the past? Right. Well, that's not observable. So right. at that point, we're, we're taking a faith step. Right. Uh, example would be, I see a river eroding. I see a heavy storm, and I watch the banks of the river get wider. I see a lot of deposit going on because of this. I, I do these observations. This is real-time observations. And then I see the Grand Canyon. Right. And I say, gee, there's a river at the bottom of that Grand Canyon, and I see this canyon kind of walks all around. It meanders around, and maybe I can use the observation of the river 
to go back and say this is how this canyon formed. So I think in terms of a long period of time with a little bit of water cutting down through this canyon. And so they come up with the millions of years that the Grand Canyon exists. The problem with that is I didn't see the Grand Canyon form. Right. And I'm making an inference that this process of erosion can explain this canyon. The problem with that is someone else may say, have we ever seen a river that's cut a mile deep? It meanders side to side, gets wider, makes oxbow lakes, but it doesn't go deep. You don't see a Grand Canyon type of erosion. Mm -hmm. That's unusual. So I can't use that as a key to the past. Then we have something like Mount St. Helen that erupts, and suddenly we have a miniature Grand Canyon form in a matter of days through a very violent activity. And so now we actually do have something that says maybe this canyon was not the result of a, of a slow, gradual process, but maybe a catastrophic process, one much larger than Mount St. Helen. And so then I, as a scientist, I can say, have we have any evidence that something like this has occurred? Well, as a scientist, I also see there's evidences of destruction. They're called mm -hmm. fossils. Right. And we see fossils all over the place. And we say, okay, what causes a fossil? Well, if you think about that, an animal dies in my backyard, it doesn't become a fossil. It probably becomes food for some predator. Right. Okay? Uh, it decays. The bones are spread all over the place. For a fossil to form, something uh, pretty remarkable has to happen. It has to be buried quickly. Right. has to be preserved in such a way that doesn't allow predators to get to it, doesn't allow the bones to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And in some places, we actually have these minerals replacing the, the natural bone. And so what you end up having is a very... Uh, unique situation. Well, what causes that? We know that happens in a catastrophic event. So we have catastrophic events mm -hmm. all over the place because we find fossils everywhere. All and, over the world. All over yep. the world. And the, the amazing thing is, um, you know, what what story would allow you... Yeah. What catastrophic yeah, event what catastrophic happened event all over the world. <laughs> which would allow something like a Mount St. Helens event cause yeah. a canyon type of effect. Mm -hmm. Um, give you one more, and then we'll pull it together. Um, <laughs> mountains, where are mountains come from? Okay, so we're told that you know early in the Earth's history, the Earth was molten and it was cooling mm -hmm. and it wrinkled, and these wrinkles are the beginning of these mountain ranges, and the water started condensing, and as they rained and came down the sides of the mountains, they started collecting in basins. And we call these ocean basins because they were getting more and more minerals in them. They became salty. Uh, and so then eventually the water came to a point where it could support life, and then life turned in from amoeba to fish to men, okay? Right. Then you dig up these catastrophic fossils. Well, where do you find them? Well, you find them on mountaintops. Mm -hmm. Now, wait a minute. Mountains formed before life, but we got evidence of life on top of mountaintops, and they were laid down in layers, and these layers would have been flat when they were laid down because they don't lay down in, in uphill patterns. Right. So now we got mountains had to be below the oceans when these fossils formed mm -hmm. for them to exist on top of the mountains afterwards. Well, how could you have mountains underneath oceans before life was extinct or before it was killed off, which means mountains have to be new events not old events right and somehow we've got to come up with this explanation how these mountains are now above the oceans yeah and i'm thinking okay wait a minute the psalms talked about the the ending of the flood when the god god called the mountains to rise the valleys to sink yeah and so now we look at the today being a key to the past we have nothing to explain mountains 
but yet we got mountains and we got mountains that show life on top, had formed yeah. on top of them mm-hmm. and none of that works unless you have yeah. a catastrophic event yeah. what, with what, a whole lot of water yeah what could it be i don't I, 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 you know. let me think is there something that could explain that hmm. and so those are the things <laughs> i've never taught in the university you know i've never right, taught right. at the class but you sit there and say it's the only logical explanation yeah which is what's the explanation is the biblical flood. The flood, you know, right. So in a public school, I couldn't say that, but I right. could say, boy, it sure looks like there was some large catastrophic yeah. water event That's right. <laughs> that extinct a whole lot of life. Of course, That's the way to dance around it. Yeah, you know, and gee, I wonder how anyone ever survived that event. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how that could have happened. So we, we won't get <laughs> into funny. those accounts. So That's, that's funny. That, that, I love that you brought up the empirical science and historical, just kind of in review, because I'm I'm the, the layman here. Like I don't I you know you're talking you're saying a lot of smart things, so I'm going to try to break it down just to make sure I understand it. But empirical science is is um, observable science. So if you're trying to like if you're watching cells in a petri dish, then that you're looking at and you're seeing what they do. You're making you're, observations. You're making generalizations. Right. right. I'm seeing it happen right in front of me. And uh, creationism and evolution would fall into the historical science, right? Because we, we don't, obviously we didn't see the earth created. We didn't see all these uh, thousands of years to the creationists. We definitely didn't see the billions of years if you're an evolutionist. But, um, but, but that's what historical science is, right? Trying to, make, uh, trying to make sense of what happened in the past. For example, uh, evolutionists would argue that it is observable. Right. And you'd say, well, what are you talking about? I'd say, well, life reproduces after its own kind until we have a mutation, a mistake. And so these mistakes would bring about a different organism, would bring about a different form of life. If this organism had some beneficial property, then natural selection would select it over the norm, and this would then become the the walking up the evolutionary tree, going from one form of life to another. So they would say, we observe mutations. We, we can force mutations through irradiation. So we can take fruit flies, so we can irradiate them, and we can form mutated fruit flies. Mm-hmm. The problem is they never make a beetle. They don't make another, they make a deformed fruit fly. Right. And so then the question is asked, well, where are these beneficial mutations you're talking about? Their answer would be, well, can't you just imagine? Yeah. No. If we're talking science, I'm not going to play. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Show me the beneficial mutation. Right. Show me the evidence in the rocks that show me this transitional form of this reptile becoming this bird, of this horse becoming the Eohippus, the little dawn horse, up mm-hmm. to the, the final form. Every time they find one, it's not long before they throw it out, and they throw it out by their own evolutionary friends saying, you know what, that doesn't work. Uh, one of the things that was taught when I was in public school, and I think it's still in a lot of books, is that you can look at the embryonic uh, development and you can see the embryo going through all the stages of uh, evolution as it has gill slits, and these gill slits develop into lungs and so forth and so on. And that's been thrown out by the evolutionists a long time ago, but it's still in textbooks. Right. The horses, you know, going from the little horse up to the full-size horse, and then they find them all in the same area, which means they're contemporary. It's not an evolutionary path. It's just simply a lot of animals that had some similarities, and they grouped them together. So evolutionists would argue they see it, but what I would argue is they don't see it. They infer it if you put all the pieces together. Is there a lot of... of, um stuff in textbooks about evolution that even an evolutionist would say is outdated information? 
If you have an evolutionist who's well-trained, yes. Okay. Unfortunately, there's a lot of teachers teaching at a high school level that have enough evolution to be dangerous. Got it. And so they're going to teach it as if it's a fact. Right. For example, I, I watched on a state-level test asking proof of evolution, and one of them is something called a vestigial organ. And that's something like the appendix mm-hmm. that they say is left over from our evolutionary past, but we no longer need it, and therefore it's proof of our evolutionary uh, that we've improved. Pre- right. Right. And then they find out recently that when people have uh, intestinal infections and they give them strong antibiotics to kill off whatever it is, that the appendix becomes kind of the the safe haven for the good bacteria that because of the appendix, it can then reseed the intestinal tract, and it actually is something that keeps us healthy. Mm -hmm. And that was something they found out indirectly. And a lot of these people in this research article I read said, you know, maybe we've been a little bit too quick of cutting out appendixes because right. it actually serves a function. Right. And right. so every time, and yet in the in the high school book, it says the appendix is a vestigial organ. It's proof of our evolutionary past. But right. in the research journals, and this was in the last year, they're now saying it's no longer a vestigial organ. It's something that actually plays a functional part. Right. Many biologists in high school would not know that because Got they it. haven't read the current literature. Right. That, that, that is, I mean, I'm not trying to be an alarmist here, but that is, that's a terrifying thing to think that there's a bunch of outdated material in these books. Um, and not outdated to us because, we, you know, we, we don't believe in that anyways, but like, but outdated to the evolutionists themselves where even they don't stand by it anymore. Yet it's still slipping in as fact and that it's, it's science, you yeah. know, it's, and so. Well, um, well, that's great. That you know, um, what I, what I want to do is I'm gonna, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back for the second par- uh, portion of this, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what creation actually is and what evolution actually is uh, in a little more detail. So, uh, thanks for staying tuned. Hang in there, and we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 